0: Okay, we're ready to start. So I'm just going to share my screen for a second to show what we're going to be talking about. All right. So this article, uh, I'm Ira Kirschenbaum. I'm the editor of the Journal for Orthopedic Experience and Innovation. Um, This article uh, came out of nowhere 1,050 views. 1,050 views. Truly a remarkable. review to the authors, to the product, and uh, to what they wrote and the interest that it gathered. Just to give you an idea, the average article in Journal of Orthoplasty gets 67 views. So for this to get 1,050 views and 43 PDF downloads is absolutely uh, remarkable. Um, The authors, Kalen Strausser curtis Chris Varacalo, uh, Voss Stevens and Captain, is that right? Captime, yep. Captain Captain did an amazing job. Chris, why don't you just tell me a little bit about what got you interested in doing this study? I mean, because you're you're in practice in mid Pennsylvania, right? Mm-hmm. This made a splash that makes the Rothman Institute articles look benign. <laughs>
1: Well, thank you uh, for that. And yeah, it's an exciting um, topic for sure. I think it identifies a a treatment gap and that's probably, you know, one of the reasons it garnered a little bit of attention because it's it's something that we all deal with in our, you know, orthopedic practices and and even general practices, musculoskeletal medicine. We're seeing elbow uh, tendinitis and tendinopathy uh, quite frequently and um, outside of corticosteroid injections or you know uh, non-insurance covered treatments you know orthobiologic shockwave prolotherapy needle fenestration not really significant treatments so i've been i've been doing these uh, ultrasound guided tenotomies for about 8 years in my practice and and just a little background on me yeah i'm a, a primary care sports medicine physician and uh very handy with the ultrasound um in my own opinion, and that's just from a lot of practice and a lot of treatments. And so um, I really um, had a lot of these patients land in my uh, office uh, with um, you know, not really many other options for them. You know, they maybe saw one of my orthopedic surgery colleagues um and they you know didn't want to operate on them or, uh, um, didn't feel like their disease was severe enough, but they landed in my office because they had some issues with acti- activities of daily living, their functioning, um, just their quality of life in general. Right. And so, um, as I was uh, practicing, you know, my my treatment options is, you know, I do some conservative treatments, some rehabilitation, you know, maybe some splinting, uh, maybe a counterforce strap, um, uh, and then a corticosteroid injection. And inevitably, I saw. Those patients return, you know, in two or three months with uh, the report that they felt amazing for six weeks or eight right. weeks and their pain returned. And so, you know, talking about other things, I'm, I'm in a, a little um, it's not an underserved area, but we have a disproportionate share of Medicaid. So, you know, then we start talking about orthobiologic injections. You know, can we do PRP? You know, uh, can we do, you know, some type of amniotic allograft, something like that, you know, really to, to treat this, are we just doing another corticosteroid injection? And so many of my patients said, you know what, I can't really afford, you know, any, you know, non-insurance covered things. So let's do do another corticosteroid injection. So then we injected them again and really a similar story or, you know, even less relief, you know, this time it worked for a month. And then I see him back in three months and they say, yep, I felt great for a month. And now, you know, two months of pain and decrease in my function activity, and uh, yeah, what else do you have for me? And so this was actually introduced um, to me uh, a year or two into my practice um, as a treatment option for uh, chronic tendinopathy. And just over the years, um, really trying to learn more about tendons and, and, and tendon pathology, um, this treatment option really makes sense because a lot of the times what we're treating is not you know tendinitis, so to speak. Um, It's more uh, tendinosis where you're having, you know, degraded damaged collagen fibers in that tendon. And a lot of the treatment options we have don't address that pathologic tendon tissue. And this is a treatment option that really is aimed to address the uh, resection of that pathologic tendon tissue, much like, you know, an open procedure would, but we can do this uh, minimally invasive with ultrasound assistance to identify the structures. And, and really that tendon tissue looks hypoechoic or black on ultrasound where it should look, you know, kind of bright white or grayish mm-hmm. and organized fibers. That tissue really looks degraded and degenerative on ultrasound. And this is something that uh, a treatment we can, you know, take and, and utilize to, to uh, debride that bad tendon tissue, that de- degenerative tendon tissue and uh, lead to some um, pretty good outcomes for those patients.
0: So I noticed in the article that um, you had a wide indication base. You know, someone who failed the PRP or failed a cortisone injection or failed this. What was what was the number one treatment that most people had it was probably it looked like it looked like it was corticosteroids.
1: Corticosteroids. I mean, anyone that practices you know musculoskeletal medicine, you know, we rely heavily on those corticosteroid injections and you know, when we started designing the study seven years ago, um, you know, we knew less about tendons than we know now. Um, And corticosteroids, from a provider standpoint now and and, uh, even patient standpoint, you know, a little scared uh, or uh, a little uh, nervous or or, uh, basically resigning to the fact that, you know, we won't want to do corticosteroid or or even anesthetic in and around these tendons a lot of times because of some of the catabolic effects that can happen. So yeah, corticosteroids obviously are pretty popular treatment. You know, patients love them because they give them, you know, quick relief, um, but really they land back in our office with uh, recalcitrant symptoms most of the time after we do these injections.
0: So I, uh, you know, I I got out of the OR a couple of years ago. I have both of my knees replaced, but uh, as i like to say, I still identify as a hip and knee replacement surgeon. But in my office, I see general orthopedics, something that I started my practice with and something you sort of end your practice with. And I, I sort of kind of uh, put them into three categories, the irritant problems and the problems that we know we can solve with a scalpel. Yeah. And it's actually amazing when you um, don't have your PAs see you know, all the non-operative and you see it yourself, that you see Achilles tendinitis, Achilles tendinopathy, patella tendinopathy, uh, greater uh, greater trochanter um, up to their fifth injection from somebody. Um, And then you get an MRI and then you hope maybe it's a gluteus medius tear so you could operate and put a bio patch on that or something of that nature, Right. Um, What other, I mean, you're not speaking for the company, so you could speak anything, any level. Um, Do you see any limit on any parts of the tendinopathy, the emphysopathies that this can't treat?
1: Yeah. And so I'm just speaking from personal experience and just having thousands of these, you know, minimally invasive tenonomies under my belt it's really something that there is not a limit. I mean, obviously, to your point, uh, you identify a great treatment gap, and and a, a lot of my colleagues. Uh, my brother's an orthopedic surgeon, sports surgeon um, that does uh, a lot of the you know arthroscopic or you know uh, uh, sports related uh, surgeries, as well as some arthroplasty, and. You know we pair well together because anything that he sees or his APPs, his advanced practice providers see that that falls into this tendon category, you know, uh, tendonitis or tendinosis, um, kind of gets shoveled my way because we have a good treatment in our practice. But right. but you're absolutely right. I, I don't think there is a limit. And you know from from the glute med um, that greater trochanteric lateral pain syndrome to the Achilles to the the plantar fascia the patellar tendon quad tendon. You know, you know, calcific tendinopathy in the shoulder, this device actually takes care of um, those issues. And, you know, if you have a, a you know, greater than 50% tendon tear, um, you know, you kind of set and level expectations where, you know, you know, if you're 85 with a partial tendon tear, okay, maybe we're talking about doing something like this. If you're 30 with a partial tendon tear, greater than 50% tendon tear, you know, we're talking about, you know, maybe repair or something like that. So it's a nice addition to uh, many orthopedic practices to have someone that's that's skilled in administering these treatments um, because it keeps those patients, you know, in-house and, and under your own roof and it allows them other treatment options other than corticosteroids or biologics or, or physical therapy or bracing and things like that.
0: Tell me a little bit about um, the results when they're successful. How long does it take? Do you see it immediately? Is there a lot of pain after the procedure? Um, yeah, that's
1: a. That's a great point because that's what we're talking about with a lot of the patients, and we're we're trying to set expectations with this. So, so it's a little deceptive for the patient. and you know, we all talk to patients and we have these discussions and and they retain uh, a variable amount of information that we deliver to them. But um, it's a little deceptive in the fact that, you know, we use an 11 blade, we make a stab incision um, on the skin. so we close it with stereo strips most of the time. Um, So it's a little deceptive in terms of a patient looking at the procedure they have done and expecting a fast result. And sometimes it is, but most of the time what it does is it follows general, you know, a healing cascade in general where, you know, for the first two weeks or so, there is some discomfort and maybe some increase in the uh, post-procedural soreness, maybe a little bit above the baseline. So in that phase, you know, the first two weeks or so, we're really protecting whatever area that we've uh, just worked on with the uh, minimally invasive tonotomy. And then over the weeks two through six, um, there's usually a general progression of improvement in symptoms. A lot of times by week six, we're talking 80 to 85 percent improvement in a lot of these patients, but not all. Um, and the whole time we're, we're meeting with them at two weeks and six weeks, typically either myself or one of my uh, PAs or, or even my athletic training staff. And we're discussing this uh, this return and this uh, return to, to functioning and recovery, and uh, that six to twelve weeks is really when we garner a lot uh, of those residual, you know, maybe non. Uh, uh, improvement patients initially. Um, Week 6 to 12 is really where that sets in. The advantage of doing something like this is is we protect them for about a week or two post-procedure, but then after two weeks, we're really um, not cutting them loose, but allowing them to get into a gradual return to um, activity based on their symptoms and and what they're feeling. So uh, I always uh, explain to patients, hey, you're doing this procedure for a uh, little faster uh, return to activity. That's a double-edged sword where um, you can do too much too soon, but you can also, you know, do too little. And so at week two, typically when we see them in the office, we're allowing them to advance some of their activity as pain allows. And then week uh, six and week six through 12 is typically when we see a lot of the Uh, the bulk of the patients in that bell-shaped curve, that's when they're really responding to these treatments.
0: Superb. Kevin, you had a question.
1: So, Chris, it's uh, great to see you and appreciate
2: it. You know, unfortunately, I've written a lot, and I'm curious, you know, the, the Swiss said years ago, all you have to do is stick a needle in the elbow, cause some blood flow, and suddenly, because it is a watershed area, I know you know, anything will work. So yes, we inject steroids, yes we do all this other stuff, but someone did a study and they just poked the needle in and they got the people with the same result because they got blood flow to the area. The British, I'm an old, I visited a guy named Sir William Wadsworth. He has this battle ax of a nurse. You go into the back room in a soundproof room, he takes your elbow, he rips it, to hold it straight to rip the fibers most people have partial tears. The British typically go, oops, you know, an American would scream. He throws an ice pack on it. And suddenly now he says, Oh, you'll be better. Now go away. So I think 10 10 jet is 10x, the old 10x, or is that different? It's uh
1: it's it's a little different. Uh actually it's a lot different. Okay. So Um,
2: how 10x and Bernie Maury, if you wouldn't mind, is a little different than 10jet and how we're not doing. I we evacuate. The, I agree with you. It's a tendinosis. We've written about that. So how does that differ then in the two?
1: Yeah. So you highlight uh, just to kind of circle back to your initial point. You highlight a good point because you know I always liken this to um, you know how do you treat a wart? There's like a hundred different ways to treat a wart. That's because there's not one definitive you know perfect way to do it. There's a lot of different ways to skin the cat, so to speak. And so that's really where we're coming into um, identifying which tendons are going to be best treated with which technologies. And so, you know, when you see this degenerative tendon, you know, a lot of people that do ultrasound don't look at, you know, other factors with ultrasound. Uh, very easily, you can throw on color Doppler and see if there's any hyperemia or, or neovascularity that's happening. Mm-hmm. Those types of tendons can respond better to maybe some of the injectables or biologic treatments versus a tendon that's completely degenerative that, you know, if you throw color Doppler on, there's no blood flow, no neovascularity there. And we're just talking about a degenerative condition. So I think to your point is there needs to be a little more research. How 10X and 10Jet differ is 10X is is more oscillatory and basically shaking and debreeding that way with very little aspiration component you know there's saline that's infused to cool the needle tip because it gets pretty hot on um, with the oscillation and so the 10x actually floods the area with some saline cools the needle tip actually distorts your image as well when you're performing ultrasound um so you kind of lose that hypo and really the quality of the tendon gets distorted while you're doing the procedure 10 jet conversely pressurizes saline through a double lumen. And actually in the inferior lumen, it gets pressurized. And then through uh, aspiration, there's a cutting window at the distal end of the tip that actually through the velocity of the saline creates a negative pressure called the venturi suction effect that actually resects this tissue and actually collects it in a canister um, that is actually physically removed from the body. And then the other part of that is you're also needling that tendon as well while you're performing the procedure. So (laughs) the penjet differentiates itself is it's actually performing resection and needle tenotomy and fenestration together in one kind of you know very easy to use device that we can accomplish a lot of different things. But to your point, I think we need to better classify tendons. And then also as we are classifying these tendon pathologies better, we can actually recommend more effective treatments um, for these different types of tendons, because, you know, a degenerative tendon, you're going to treat a little bit different than a, a hyperemic tendon with degeneration versus just a straight hyperemic tendon with hypervascularity. Thank you. you know, I, Thank you for the question. That was a great question.
0: You know, it's interesting. I Alejandro Badia uses Tenex. Um, and he, he put together this video, which I'll show. It's not what you use, but this is how he describes it, okay? Uh, hopefully, you can see my screen now?
1: Yes.
3: Yeah. I want to draw it out so sort of people understand. So if you look at his arm, okay, so here, here is a tip of that very prominent bone right there. And the patients, you know, usually have pain there. So this is muscular, and then this is sort of tendinous. The tendinous gets diseased, right? So people come in with MRIs and they say, "Oh, my tendon ruptured." No, the tendon doesn't rupture. What it is is it's degenerative. So on an MRI, it looks uh, abnormal, and as it does on the ultrasound. So what we used to do is make an incision from here to here, and go through skin, go to the muscle, elevate the muscle and the tendon origin, and scrape the bone and scrape the tendon. And that works, but you can imagine that that's painful post-op. And for somebody to go back to tennis or golf or even or, or manual work, that's very difficult, very painful. So it takes a while. This, These people can go back. I mean, I have tennis players going back within about three weeks uh, because instead of opening and scraping this area, I'm going in with a little hole and a device, called right? well, the uh, Tenex. Uh, it works on the tendon, and it's got a little oscillating tip, and that vibrates, ultrasonic, It's ultrasonic uh, energy that then basically liquefies a bad tendon and aspirates it, suctions it out, which is why you probably don't have pain because the the chemicals that really stimulate that right. the brain perceives as painful, called uh, cytokines. they' they've been suctioned out. So even when you do the open surgery, many times that's still there,
1: but but.
0: So I will uh, stop to share. Is that about accurate, there, Chris?
1: Yeah, that I would say that's a that's a nice description, and that's what you're uh, that's what you're really getting at. I'll just add that the the ten jet device actually yeah. suctions a lot better than the ten X to remove that material, but I think some of that saline flush is uh, part of uh, the success of 10X. And I started using uh, 10X when I first started doing these tenotomies and then it really shifted to the 10Jet because I you know, right. anecdotally saw um, some improved results and some faster recovery. And I think it's that resection piece that uh, is the missing component.
0: So just one one slight correction. In, in Joey, we don't believe in anecdotes. We, we call that experience. <laughs> <laughs> we call that experience with innovation.
1: Yeah, exactly you're right on
0: you know otherwise we'd be joa which would be the journal of anecdotes but the joa is already i I stand corrected (laughs) you stand corrected you know in my you got to use the term in my experience in using this innovation so let's talk about the big question which is a little bit of the multi-pound gorilla on the wall how do you get paid for this
1: yeah, so that's a that's a good um point and that's one of the things that uh you know over the the years of doing this um really the descriptors are important in describing what you're actually doing in, in dividing and resecting uh tendon. So um from a personal opinion standpoint, I I do feel um pretty strongly there needs to be some dedicated codes for these procedures which there are not yeah. at this point and that's where, you know, utilizing some of these, uh, you know, avenues to have some peer-reviewed research is going to be helpful. Yeah. Um, but essentially, um, there are a lot of different coders and billers that have kind of different interpretations of of the procedural description and the approach and everything like that. And so some will settle on, you know, this is actually a tenotomy uh, code and others settle on, well, this is more of an enlisted code. I think it's it can distinguish itself. Uh, you're actually um, resecting tendon using this device and, and degenerative tendon tissue, and you're dividing it and you're essentially getting to that pathologic tissue um, through tendon division. And so uh, autonomy code, I do feel is appropriate, um, but there's some billers and coders that, that disagree with that. But I do, I think to your point, I think we need more peer-reviewed research to really maybe then present um, to the AMA that maybe we can get some uh, separate coding and uh, reimbursement guides too.
0: Yeah, and also to AAOs clinical practice guidelines. Absolutely, you know, to to look at it. And, you know, they mainly look at you know spinal stenosis, osteoarthritis of the knee. You know, oh, it's just a tendon. You know, which which fills my office. You know, <laughs> I mean, we have one point one two five million clinic visits in the South Bronx, of which one point one two have tendinopathies. <laughs> yeah.
1: And I think we're, we're mean, about the same in Central Pennsylvania too. <laughs> right, I, I right, right. Exactly. You're you're right. There's there's uh, this this fills offices. This uh, my yep. practice is extremely busy, and I don't do arthroplasty, and I don't do rotator cuff repair, and I don't do ACL reconstruction. I don't do partial meniscectomies. But my practice is extremely busy to the point where I have three procedure days a week where I'm doing a lot of these procedures. Um, so it's something that uh, really I've kind of developed a niche in my area where. Um, I can take care of these uh, problems, I take care of them effectively, and uh, we get good patient outcomes and self-referrals that way. I have people coming from, you know, states away to have this treatment done because there's not a lot of providers that do it.
0: Right. So how, again, I'm going to push the cost a little bit, you know, how, what is the cost to the facility? To start. The cost
1: of the facility for uh for the, the console tenure. and the, the equipment, you mean?
0: No, oh, yeah, no, not 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 the part B, the, the 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 uh the uh for the equipment. Now, assuming you have the ultrasound already, you know, you have the setup, you have the nurses, you know what what is it, what is the, the raw cost?
1: Yeah, so, so from from a uh from a facility side and, and purchasing the equipment. Um, The console uh, can be a few thousand dollars. It all depends on, you know, how, what, you know, like any practice, you know, how much volume you're doing can kind of decrease your costs and everything like that. But, you know, the console is reusable. Uh, yeah. It is a plug and play uh, type of technology into the console. So your, dis- your needle tip is, uh, your device is disposable and that can run anywhere from, you know, five, $600 up to a thousand dollars. Um, uh, or more sometimes with, with some of the tonotomy devices uh, that are on the market right now. Um, but that's what you're looking at. And then, you know, cost uh, facility reimbursement for using tonotomy codes is certainly going to cover the cost plus uh, extra with that. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a, it's a reasonable thing. If you're talking about, you know, taking care of these patients and decrease, decreasing costs as well, just overall, you know, burden of, of healthcare, care. You know, I do all these under local anesthetic as well. Yeah. Um, there we don't have to recover them in the PACU, uh, we're talking during the procedure. It takes me, you know, essentially less than five minutes to do it. And, you know, they're driving themselves themselves to, and from the procedure many, many, many times. So in terms of, you know, anesthesia costs and, and nursing costs and, you know, recovery PACU costs and all that type of stuff, it's, those are eliminated a lot of times.
0: So I want to, I want to mention, um, we're at the, uh, halftime point. Oh my God. Look who has joined us.
3: Yes. Oh, yes. Oh my God, Alejandro Badia. Alejandro, are you there? I just texted him. Oh, I'm yeah. to show. <laughs>
0: no surprise. <there. laughs> yeah. So, so there, there you go. Uh, Alejandro, we just showed you a video of the 10x. Um, so uh, I don't know if you could yeah. you're muted.
3: You're yeah. muted. Yeah.
0: yeah,
4: sorry. We just um, showed the uh, YouTube video of right. the 10x. Uh, no, and I and I said you you had you guys had already discussed a paper on the um the hydro uh, ablation. Yeah, that was option. Chris Baracalos. Uh, I want to know your
0: experience in treating just using this tech kind of technology, whether it's 10x or 10jet your, your overall experience and patient satisfaction with this?
4: You know, I've never run the numbers, but I'm going to say it's at least 90% good to excellent. Uh, What I will tell you, the frustrating ones are the occasional ones who aren't much better. And I think a lot of it is patient expectation. And then there's, there's a few outliers that just like don't have any relief. And those are the ones that you know, maybe I'll try PRP. Maybe I'll give them a little cortisone injection. And uh, there's just people that it's just resistant, you know. Um, uh, but I, I the, the beauty of it is if, for example, if it doesn't work that well, is that it's a com- almost completely painless procedure and post-op. And and the fact that you can use your arm, you know, re- literally right away. I mean, I let my athletes, tennis players, golfers and stuff return back gradually in about three three to four weeks. I mean, with open tenotomy, I mean, you, you all know the inertial procedure, that, you know, it hurts oh, yeah. quite a while. So that yeah, that's my experience. I mean, it's in line with, you know, Bernie Mori had a, a paper really with mostly with a Singapore before they had FDA and all the, they did a study and I I, I believe it was, so 86% right. good, excellent. Right. So kind of in line with a lot of the other techniques, but just... Um, but just less painful and and, and faster. You, you don't burn any bridges. You can always do something more aggressive.
1: Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. And then those recalcitrant ones, that's where we're, you know, you're kind of looking at why are they recalcitrant? Is that tendon, you know, have neovascularity and hyperemia? Is there something else you need to do? Did you overtreat, you know, the tendon? Did they flare it up in the recovery phase or now they have a tendonitis? on top of, you know, tendinosis that you maybe addressed, you know, with your, with your procedure. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that, that one, you know, that 10 to 20% that maybe is recalcitrant, that's, you know, some focus now that's kind of where I really am looking a lot of times at why are the, why we have 10 to 20% that aren't responding when we have great response out of the majority of patients. And like I said, there's, there's probably some subclassifications of these tendons that uh, need, we need to shed a little further light on and then really elicit some treatments toward that.
2: So I would recommend to both of you, I've used 10X 100s Kevin Rancher, that yeah, you get, Kevin. I know you're both very proficient in the ultrasound, go get an MRI, look for the dead tissue, see, really see the whole briefing of it. And that may teach you, cause you have both have the experience why those are recalcitrant. Exclude your workers comp because I agree. I've had yeah. some failures in workers comp. Today, <laughs> no surprise, but I agree, couldn't be you know, <laughs> surprised. So, but I mean, I can get you know ninety percent, and I've used the ten x whatever it is. Um, so, um, so it's it's interesting. Take an MRI. You, you might be surprised that you have a full thickness tear already, and that. Isn't going to help with what you're doing, and you got to go in and do some sewing. So.
1: That is true. And that at that point, you know, if I, I've done enough of these where I, if I see them at six weeks and I can kind of sense where where it's going, you know, there's typically an upward trajectory. If it's not resolution at six weeks, there's an upward trajectory at six weeks. But if we're if we're status quo or we're worse uh than we were pre-procedure you know, it's either, you know, some sort of, you know, inflammation, you know, the history tells you the whole story. I felt great doc for four weeks. And then, you know, I played, you know, tennis or I, you know, I, I painted my wall or I did all my guarding or whatever. Um, uh, more than I ever had before. Okay. Maybe you have a little tendonitis on top of things where where you flared up during recovery phase, but usually at that six weeks without a history like that, where they were feeling great and maybe aggravated it. You know, an MRI is extremely helpful at that point. And that's where I start looking at that cross-sectional imaging to shed a little more light on um, why they're not why they're not part of that 80-90 percent. Yeah. great point.
4: Yeah, but aren't you worried that when you get the MRI, the patient reads a report and it says, <laughs> "Oh, doc, you absolutely." But
2: yeah.
4: <laughs> so that's that's kind of why I, I I shy away from the MRI because I'm just not sure it changes. But it sounds like Kevin is. Um, is oh. suggesting that you know if you see that that big gap or or something like that, you actually have to go in? Uh, do you actually repair it, Kevin? I mean, do you
2: yeah, do you, yeah, you have, sure. you have drill holes and anchor? What do you use? So I want to go backwards to scare a little of you. I never go <laughs> a- without I don't own an MR facility. I want to make it very clear. Okay. Okay, don't make a penny. There's never been a patient in my life on an elbow that I never got an MRI. First. Wow, because I want to classify them that this is America, that either the MRI is normal. And so you can blow on it, you can put some air on it and it's going to get better and it doesn't matter. And they're going to get better. The other ones are, it's a complete tear. They're going to surgery right away. And 95% of them are the partial tears that you're talking about. And so I want to classify the patient right away what bucket they're in. And I can dispense with the two buckets, the ones that have no tear whatsoever and say, I don't care, use a bandit, smell on it, it give Epsom salts. I, I don't care what you do because you're going to get better. The full thickness tear I'm going to repair. So what I do do, I don't do inertial because I was trained by Jim Strickland and those guys. So you see, we actually take the rongeur right off the lateral epicondyle. Uh, we Another day, I'll tell you, Alejandro, what I do, but it's it's in the Indiana Hand Center. And so that's what I do. And then I do the 10X, like you said, with the 95% with the ultrasound. Plus, I want to bust the healthcare system. So that's great because I'm now stifling it. So it's great. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna
0: to push uh, Alejandro and Chris. Uh, why isn't a 10Jet, for example, you know, or, or a 10 or this technology. Why doesn't every practice have this?
3: Uh,
0: I mean, I'm thinking to myself. I have a non-operative, uh, uh, an an MD. Uh, sorry, a, a, a an MD who 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 operated, got out of the OR at a young age because he just didn't want to do big cases, and now he's doing procedures and a variety of things. And uh, and I'm thinking to myself, did I? Am I missing the boat here in in our clinic? I mean, you know. You know, what's, I mean, what is, is, is there any reason not to have this in your, in your armamentarium?
1: So I, in my opinion, there isn't really a reason. I mean, if it, if it's something and you rely on MRI, it's something that if you don't know ultrasound, that's a big limiting factor okay. for ultrasound, ultrasound diagnosis, and just intervening with the ultrasound, guiding a device or a needle to a location With accuracy. You know, when you utilize an ultrasound, the the sound, the the beam, the ultrasound beam is a millimeter thick. And so when you have a millimeter thick ultrasound beam and you place it on somebody and the probes, actually the footprint of the probe is wider than that. It can be very frustrating when you're trying to guide to a location and you look at the ultrasound screen and you can't see your needle. And so it takes a little, you know, uh, hand eye and motor coordination to learn that, but the reps help with that. And the elbow, you know, more superficial in area, you know, utilizing ultrasound, in the elbow, you know, you're laying your device more flat. The sound waves are penetrating and, and, and bouncing back and reflecting back to the ultrasound probe. And so there's more to come back. And so it's a little easier to see it's more superficial. And so you can start with something like an elbow and really get uh, proficient with that. You can pair that also with MRI findings and ultrasound findings. So, you know, as you're getting good with ultrasound, you can actually, you know, look in an MRI. And then look at a tendon under ultrasound and really correlate those findings together, throw on Doppler, you know, utilize that. You can actually scan in, you know, short and long axis um, cross-sectioning and uh, uh, in long axis as well, where you can actually look at that tendon in a lot of different planes in real time. You can also, you know, activate that tendon and see, you know, what type of, you know, firing that you get, you know. When you're injecting with lidocaine, you can actually elicit some partial tears um, just by diffusion of that liquid into the area. So, you know, it takes reps like anything in medicine, but I think one of the major limiting factors in terms of getting this into orthopedic practices is that skill and knowledge with the ultrasound. Yeah. You know, there are specialty in, in in primary care sports medicine and non-operative sports medicine is becoming more and more popular. Um, in terms of you know training programs and things like that. So there will be you know, more and more physicians, this is part of our training program in in fellowship. Um, so there'll be more and more physicians coming out that are familiar with ultrasound and then working alongside you know sports surgery fellowships, you know, a lot of these programs are paired together, so there'll be comfort um, both ways. So I do think this should be in every orthopedic and musculoskeletal practice, but there are limiting factors with that that'll probably you know resolve with, with time and more training. But um, if that's something that people are looking into doing, I think, you know, throwing an ultrasound probe on a tendon. And if you have an MRI kind of looking at the MRI, you know, comparing that to what the tendon looks like. Um, if you're doing joint arthroplasty and cuff repair and, and ACL reconstruction, partial meniscectomy, uh, maybe this is not something that, you know, you're interested in, you're going to take the time to learn. But if you have somebody in your practice that, you know, maybe is seeing non-surgical patients, you know, this is something to really you know, push them into learning ultrasound and, and kind of bringing this to the forefront of the practice so you can keep these patients in-house and treat them effectively.
3: Uh, Alejandro, what do you think?
4: Yeah, um, well, I think part of the problem is uh, us, you know, surgeons are a bit more dogmatic, right? The the um, the the physiatrists and, and pain guys and all, I, I think they tend to be more open-minded about trying new things. And obviously, they don't, they don't get to do the the surgeries that Chris just mentioned. So these procedures are more appealing to them. And um, I think they're just more open-minded. And in terms of the orthopods, I mean, Kevin can tell you, I would say that us hand weenies are the most dogmatic compared to uh, maybe the sports guys. So I can tell you the the 10X uh, penetration in the hand community has not been great, Uh, has not been great. Um, So um, I I, I think it's just going to take time. And I, I think eventually, but the, the, the fact that this is um minimally invasive, non-painful, has seemed to have great results. Um it, it's just a matter of of being open-minded enough to to, to try it.
1: And, and I think, I think,
4: think we're
1: just- Yeah, we're kind of tipping the iceberg here a little bit. There's a there's some people that do it and have done it for a long time, but a majority of musculoskeletal physicians, you know, either don't do it or haven't heard of it or don't know how to do it. And you saw that with the views you mentioned at the at the top of our recording that, you know, the the views in this are are pretty substantial. It's because it is a treatment gap that that, uh, you know, we're looking for options. And, uh, yeah, it's an appealing thing to kind of say, hey, what's this about? And, you know, what kind of results are we getting and who can do this and how do you do it?
0: You know, I try to uh, when I uh, counsel young surgeons, residents, fellows, people who are going to see this video um, when we when we publish it. One of the lines that that I have uh right of authorship is never let a patient unsubscribe from your practice. All right. Never let a patient mm. subscribe. You yeah, know, you can unsubscribe from a mailing list, unless it's a Joey mailing list, then you, you don't unsubscribe <laughs> to that. But um don't let a patient unsubscribe. And you know, these diseases like tendinitis, like 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 a torus fracture, like like uh um uh a a patella tendinitis achilles tendinitis you treat those patients you own them you own the family you own the cousins you own the brother you know they all come in for everything and then grandma comes in for the total joint replacement you dismiss patients and dismiss their disease and don't treat the diseases in your community you get people to unsubscribe from your practice you know
4: yeah, so Ira, you're su- you're suggesting that because you know tennis elbow is kind of a nuisance and all that, that some people kind of brush them. Yeah, I've seen that. And those are the kind of patients sometimes I'll see in my practice. And uh you have to have, you have to be patient with them, especially the ones that don't do well because there's no surgery, it's hundred percent, right? So when right. they don't do well, it's frustrating. But at you least try. you can say to the patient, look, there's not a big scar, you didn't have a lot of pain. Let's see what else we can do. Yep. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah, to your point, that's great, though. These these musculoskeletal conditions run together. And, and if it's not in the same patient, it's in a family member or a friend or somebody like that. And, you know, adding this to your your musculoskeletal orthopedic practice is, is a nice thing, because like I mentioned uh, earlier on, you know, I work with my brother, he does sports surgery, he does arthroplasty, you know, we share a ton of patients and uh, he does things you know differently than I do. We we tackle a lot of musculoskeletal and orthopedic conditions together, and we refer back and forth all the time for different conditions that we treat best.
2: So Ira, ultrasound, yeah. OSEP, be there. <laughs> right. That's, an, that's a good segue.
0: Uh, Kevin Planch is here, and um, I do have a video about OSEP. But I'd rather, Kevin, you talk a little bit about the course this year, where it's going to be. Uh, Orthopedic Summit, Evolving Technologies. Um,
2: so I'm totally
3: biased.
2: I'm totally biased, but um, I would say that Chris doesn't realize he's going to be there, but he didn't realize it. So um, we, we offer seven different courses in one, individual tracks. whether you're a shoulder arthroplasty surgeon, whether you're a knee surgeon, whether you're a spine surgeon. And I think... Um, that there's also a PANP and sports medicine on OP, and there's a full-day ultrasound course that's being offered. It's all one price uh, because we really believe in making a difference in your practice. And when you leave, you better have been treated really well. And I treat my industry partners because without it, we don't make it, we just really try to break even. They are very kind to us. We're over-enthused, we're sold out. Uh, exhibitors, and we really can provide the greatest, newest technology that helps you in your practice, just like Chris is talking about tonight, Ira. Yeah. And Ortho Summit can really bring something. So you leave Monday, you're going to change something in your practice that's going to help your patients do a better result for you. And, and so we're honored to entertain you also, Boston, Marriott Copley, September 20 to 23 this year. Hope to see David there. Um, from Avanos, and the point is that um, you can find anything you need within your discipline, whether it's spine, trauma, hip, arthroplasty, knees, sports, shoulder, that will allow you really with great discourse. So don't be surprised if someone walks up to Chris and says, I think you're full of baloney and wants to say it, and he has to be a big boy to defend his position And he's ready, you can see how smart he is, and he has science behind it, but that's what we believe in. And so we have to have a little entertainment, But and you gotta go back at it, and men and women fight on the stage, and if they don't, they're actually not invited back. You also have to be on time, and if your talk is one second over, your microphone goes off, the screen goes black, and you're talking to nothing. So that's the point, and I think it's high energy, And I invite you all and I want you to be critical because it's for you and it's for our patients, most importantly.
3: Hands down, the best meeting in musculoskeletal (laughs) health there
2: is. How much did I pay her? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you
0: know, the good news is is that I just offered Chris a job in the Bronx, so he's just going to take the Amtrak up to boston it's uh, you know is you know you got to leave the brother thing you know behind. yeah
1: that's all right we, we only get along sometimes
0: we, we have a big family in the bronx it's, it's, it's so I, I want to encourage anyone who may may have some questions uh for chris or alejandro um i have i have a bunch more um um where did you guys learn your ultrasound where did, where did you learn your ultrasound?
1: My, I was, oh, go ahead, Chris. Oh, okay. Sorry to interrupt you there. Um, So no. I it was part of my fellowship in, in sports medicine. Uh, I actually selected, so I, I was a, a sports medicine fellow in 2015. And so uh, I selected my fellowship based on access to ultrasound because I viewed mm. ultrasound as um, kind of the wave of the future for a lot of this stuff, uh, procedural and, uh, and otherwise diagnostic. And so uh, the ultrasound I went to is University of South Carolina, and we had our own personal ultrasound as fellow. And so I basically took that and I scanned every single thing I could, a lump on, you know, a thigh, a tendon, a joint, um, anything I could. And like anything in medicine and life, it's the repetition and just doing it continuously over and over and over again and asking why and what is that and learning more. Um, You know, it really got my kickstart in fellowship and then just in practice, the same thing. Alejandro?
4: I was inspired at a. I was faculty of a of a niche hand course uh, in Girona, Spain, near Barcelona, and a guy, a young guy from from Barcelona, gave a talk, a hand surgeon, on uh, ultrasound. This was maybe fifteen years ago, and I said, "Holy cow!" And I came back and I, and I I got a um, a sonosite, and then I I did, and then I also took a course with uh, Don Buford and a number of other people. So Don uh, was doing a course, I, I'm pretty sure it was in the Miami area, so it was pretty convenient, and I, I did it, and uh, yeah, it was very helpful, and then it's just a matter of doing it after that. Um, I've also invested, it, it goes on a blink once in a while, but uh, I invested in this uh, augmented reality, so I'm wearing a headset when I'm injecting, and I'm looking right, I'm almost superimposing the ultrasound image on the shoulder, on the wrist, and um and then the patient can see the ultrasound, but I'm not turning my head, you know? Um, so that, that's
2: been pretty cool. So I do most of my injections with that technique. So Don is
1: leading the ultrasound course, but Chris is going Perfect.
3: to Perfect. Be- yeah, yeah, he's, he's very good. So Ooh. one of the other things too is,
1: you know, you, you think for your practice, you know, the cost is a limiting factor and you can have ultrasounds that range, you know, there's six figures you know, for some of those IR, you know, consult units. But now, you know, as the technology is improving, you know, there's ultrasounds that are less than, you know, $5,000 that you can pair with a tablet. And for some of these superficial structures are more than sufficient. You know, I have one that I take to my training room for my uh, college coverage. Uh, You know, I'm scanning, you know, just connected to a tablet and looking with a handheld ultrasound. So, you know, there's a wide range of of, uh, costs to these, but you can get pretty high quality images for not as expensive, you know, like it was 15 years ago. Um, you can get actually some good imaging for not as much uh, capital investment
0: to be very practical what uh what company you recommend for uh for um ultrasound now <laughs> a good price a good a good low end you know because we don't we don't have any ultrasound companies here on on here you know and people want to people want to get started right they want to get started and, You know they don't want to spend thirty-five thousand dollars for a sonosite or could they do a butterfly which which we have in our that attaches to an to an iphone you know what's the for for the for the 10 jet what's the lowest common denominator ultrasound you think you could get away with so i
1: have uh i have a, a i have sonosite units that like you mentioned it can be 35 50 grand um and that's based on the probes that you're using but i also have a v scan from ge that has uh, two probes on one handheld device it's a uh, and i don't have any relationship with an ultrasound company so i'm just saying it's just from uh, just from demoing and using you know i reach out to the company i say hey i want an ultrasound this is the price point i'm looking at what do you got and then you actually can scan and look and and, you know do things and, and demo it in real time but the ge v scan is a nice one that was less than five thousand dollars it attaches to a, a tablet it has a curvilinear probe so basically you know basic ultrasound uh, the less uh, uh uh frequency sound waves the deeper the wave penetration but less uh um less uh uh clarity and the higher the sound waves the 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 more superficial the penetration and more clarity and so it actually has a mid-range uh, uh, straight linear uh, probe and then a curved probe that's for deeper range in um, one handheld device that you can actually toggle and flip based on your tablet. So that's been really convenient. It's a nice uh, uh, starter, I think. It's going to be difficult to get really deep structures. In central Pennsylvania, I don't know where anywhere else, we got some some uh, uh, a lot of uh, subcutaneous tissue in our lateral hip patients. And so sometimes that's a little uh, challenging, but for elbows and superficial things... <laughs> Um, like that, it's uh, it's more than sufficient.
0: Alejandro, you agree with that kind of ultrasound
4: approach? Well, I the, really I have most experience with sonocyte, and uh, I haven't been that happy with them because you know when you have a problem, they they charge you for the motherboard, and they're they're not. Um, I just have found them not to be real collaborative with the clinicians. I, I don't know why. Um, I at some point, you know, especially for our ortho now centers, it's kind of almost a requirement. Because for injections and all, we do a lot of those. Uh, we really, rec- we really ap- would prefer that. I don't know if Chris, have you seen the Clarius? I haven't used it, but I don't
1: I, know I've if seen it's some- that. Yeah, I've seen yeah. that and I demoed it. It's a, you know the same type of thing. So the Clarius, the Butterfly, the V Scan. I have yeah. demoed it. I went with the V Scan over it. I, I think anyone that's interested, if you contact you know, major ultrasound manufacturers, Sonosite, you know GE. Um, Conica hmm. Minolta has has units. Um, Samsung, you know, you contact your local rep or the hospital, you know, has a local contact. You know, you ask them, give them your price point and tell them you want to demo devices. And then you kind of go from there. You can really see what you like and what, what your preference is and what fits for your practice based on, you know, your cost structure and all that. But demoing, I highly recommend. Highly recommend that.
4: Okay.
0: Yeah. So one final question for, for both of you, you may answer it the same way. So so I have like I told you I have a doctor in my office who is a who is a non-op musculoskeletal um very very adept at yeah. ultrasound where 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 does he go to start learning how to use the tenjet I mean are there tenjet training centers do we take a trip now I, no offense Chris but I'm taking a trip to South Beach Miami <laughs> in, instead of central Pennsylvania but but you know it, it, it's It's a crapshoot, and I just picked one randomly. But but, what do you recommend traveling to somebody or are there ten jet courses? I mean, just you know, yeah. So where where, where do you start? Because you don't want to start your first patient with the rep in the room, you know?
1: Right, exactly, and and it is beneficial. So it it's it's um, there's not distinctive distinctive training programs, but reaching out to the company, Hydrocision has ten jet. Um, reaching out to the company and kind of plugging you in with either resources that you can talk to, or depending on your level, you know, someone that's that's near you that you can actually observe um, doing these cases. But I think starting just getting comfortable with ultrasound is a good place to go and then start and then advancing to guiding needles to structures that you're maybe going to treat um, with, the, with the device. Because honestly, I think the progression is if you can guide a needle to a location. Let's say you're doing a, a corticosteroid injection for tennis elbow, for instance. If you can guide the corticosteroid with a 22 or 25 gauge needle, whatever you use, um, to that area, you're going you are going to be able to guide the ten jet device to that area. So I think a, a, a nice uh, in between and doing that is purchasing the ultrasound and then just guiding some of these treatments to the location, and then contacting the company to really you know kind of uh, see if there's someone close to you that you can observe some cases or things like that. There's a lot of resources that Hydrocision has as well in terms of procedure videos and rehab protocols and all that type of stuff. So you can find a lot of it online too, but I think your next step in terms of learning ultrasound and performing TENJET and these needle-based tenotomy procedures is guiding a needle to a structure in terms of the lateral epicondile. We talk about that. And then if you can guide that 22 or 25 gauge needle there, you'll be able to guide the device there as well.
4: Yeah. Alejandro? Well, I, I participated once in a, in a little course that Bernie uh, Mori um, gave down at the Mark Institute, you know, literally a mile from me. Uh, but I will tell you, it was really disappointing. I mean, how many people, you know, many colleagues from the local area came to, to, you know, to hear Bernie. I mean, I would I would come just for that. Uh, but you know, it's it's it, the best way is to really do a little lab at the academy. He did or or was it the I think it was the academy. He um, he did one of those little breakout. Um, industry sessions with a, um, I think with a cadaver arm. Uh, sometimes people have done it with, um, you know, a slab of beef or something, just so that you get oriented with the uh, with the probe and and get the feel of it. Uh, but I, I I think it really helps to to do a lab. I think that these companies need to do more of that if they want to get they want to get people using this. I think they've got to set up uh, labs. I think it's a worthwhile investment for them. Watching, I've tried. I'm watching. Um, the- uh, oh, sorry. Yeah. No, no. I am gonna say that. You know, um, I, I I almost wish I, I I figured out, gotten some people together, and buy it myself. But the 10x, you know, wasn't um, a private equity company had taken it over, and they really weren't doing much with it. And and now it's uh, Trice Medical. And I've had this ongoing discussion with them of like, guys, ah, there's a lot of people, whether it be 10x or 10jet. You know there there's enough room i mean it's a 10 enthesopathies are $10 billion, a 10 billion dollar a 10 billion dollar niche um so there's enough room for those two and a few more i um, mean you know, we remember the topaz procedure right um so so I, I think it's a matter of doing more courses yeah that, that would be my siren And uh, you know question is can you entice industry to understand that the benefit of this and getting surgeons to show up yeah um so i'm gonna uh
0: leave this with a couple of uh, comments. First of all, I want everyone to look at Alejandro's uh um office where his shelves are so good they can hold all five volumes of Campbell's orthopedics and not bend the wood. Which <laughs> <laughs> I think it's phenomenal phenomenal architecture there. Uh Chris, I want to thank you so much for coming on you and uh, Alejandro and, and Kevin. Um th- we learned a lot. There's going to be a lot of lessons for uh a lot of surgeons who see this video, uh, a lot of takeaways, um, sort of what we talked about earlier tonight, uh, Don Buford, myself, uh, Sharif Bashai, Kevin talked about the great thing about OSET, you take away things. And I hope people t- t- who joined tonight and who will see this video and listen to the podcast took away something about what it is that a very exciting and
1: underused
0: technology. So. Maybe uh Chris, you want to just make a couple of last comments and we'll call it. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. I well, first I want to say uh thanks for for having me. This was a lot of fun. Um, I speak a lot to my uh, my non-surgical or my non-operative colleagues about this type of technology. So it was really fun to to speak with you guys, get a different perspective on it, and uh, yeah, really kind of share things. I, I'm uh, all for what. You know, Kevin said, you know, uh, when we are critical and we really delve into why we're not why or why not we're doing things, that's how we all get better and we all benefit, and technology improves and and treatment protocols improve and you know the standard of care improves for the for the good of the patients. And then the second thing um, is uh, you touched on it earlier, Ira. Just you know, keeping these patients in your practice is an important thing. And and typically, you know, if I if I talk to one of my surgical colleagues and I say, oh, I inject you know, this tendon and it gets better and they don't ever come back. Well, they're not ever coming back to see you. They're coming back to someone like me to do the definitive treatment most of the time with this. So, so it's something that's a nice addition to orthopedic practice. And we can really work symbiotically together to really, you know, treat these patients better and be champions for their pain relief for these, you know, nagging nuisance type problems, but they are life altering and life changing sometimes. So once again, thanks for having me. It was a blast. I had I had fun tonight, and uh, hopefully we can publish again and do another Journal Club again soon. Yeah.
0: All right. So I want to thank everybody, and uh, we'll we'll say good night.
3: All right.
1: Thanks, thank
3: so you. Thanks, Have a good night, everyone. Good night. Good night.